Hello, fabulous listeners of Spilling Chai. Welcome to episode nine of season two of the show. You guys have such great taste in podcasts, and I'm so happy to have you with us. It is no secret that publishing in America, much like Hollywood, is not the most diverse business. In fact, a 2016 diversity baseline survey examining race and gender in book publishing found that 79% of the industry is made up of white women. The nationwide protests against racial justice over the summer set off conversations in nearly every industry about the treatment of black workers, and book publishing was no exception. Perhaps one of the biggest indicators that the publishing world is indeed serious about diversifying is the recent promotion of our guest today. I am talking about the one and only Jamia Wilson. Wilson is a feminist author, activist, and speaker. As director of the feminist press at the City University of New York and the former vice president of programs at the Women's Media Center, Jamia has been a leading voice on women's rights issues for over a decade. You have read her work in the New York Times, the Today Show, CNN, Elle, the Washington Post, and amongst many others. She is the author of Young, Gifted, and Black, The Introduction and Oral History in Together We Rise, Behind the Scenes at the Protests Heard Around the World, Step Into Your Power, 23 Lessons on How to Live Your Best Life, Big Ideas for Young Thinkers, ABCs of AOC, and the co-author of The Roadmap for Revolutionaries, Resistance, Advocacy, and Activism for All. Wilson was recently named the Vice President and Executive Editor at the Random House imprint of Penguin Random House, which is quite frankly, revolutionary. (laughs) And she is our guest today. Hello and welcome to the show, Jamia. First of all, thank you so much for agreeing to come on as a guest. This is such a huge honor. And I don't know if you remember, but I met you. I remember. (laughs) I remember. And we've been together at the Women's Media Center events. And I'm so happy to be together. And I'm really proud of you and your podcast. And I brewed a cup of chai just for this conversation. Oh, that is so awesome. What did you put in your chai? What kind of chai are you drinking? So I have some tea that I got on a trip to London last time that I was there. So I have just an awesome, um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, black tea with a little bit of coconut milk in it, some lemongrass and some cardamom. I am really impressed. You have some serious, uh, I was going to call it Thai, some serious tea game. That is some real tea. Oh my gosh. It's, you know, I love tea so much. And, you know, I, I think part of it is I'm from the South, so I drank a lot of sweet tea growing up, but then there were uh, tea plantations near where I was born in South Carolina. And then I grew up in Saudi Arabia, which has a really strong tea culture. And I was exposed to a lot of amazing teas from just other people in my school, a lot of people, different South Asian teas in the community and um, you know, different folks would bring green teas and things like that to school. So I feel like that started me with a very expensive obsession also because <laughs> I'm picky about my tea, but it's so healing. And I just think about it as you know a part of my self-care, the art of tea in my life and what it means. And I have to have it and I travel with it. I have it on the subway, on the plane, everything. <laughs> oh my goodness. You are like my dream guest. I mean, <laughs> you already were, but I, my, my jaw is actually on the ground. <laughs> Thank you. It's so cool. Oh, you had me at you and chai. I thought, oh my gosh, she's an amazing Shiro and she likes chai. <laughs> it's time, ready. Although I understand that, you know, a lot of my Indian friends have said to me, 
that, you know, chai is chai. <laughs> <laughs> well, chai is chai, but also, you know, I mean, we're on our second season now, but the entire point of starting this podcast was almost as a public service announcement against chai latte. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I was like, on behalf of all brown people, this must stop. <laughs> we couldn't take it anymore. My best friend and I, who who is my brilliant NPR uh a producer who who is executive producer of this show as well. So high five out to Bilal. But this was in when we came up with the concept. That's what we were um, circling around because we were like, this has to, chai tea latte has to stop. Oh my gosh, I love it, and I always feel really bad when I feel like I have to say it at any one of those big commercial retailers <laughs> because I know that I have friends that have told me many times from many different places that chai is chai. There's no such thing as a chai latte. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, when people say non-bread, even though I want to strangle them, that is almost better than chai latte because then you're just saying TT latte. Like, what are you saying? So true. <laughs> Clearly I need some deep therapy. Um, but it's so interesting that you brought up that you grew up in Saudi Arabia because that is my first question. You were born in the Southern part of the U.S., but you grew up as an expat in Saudi Arabia. Tell me all about that. What was that like? Were your parents were obviously working there? Yes. So my dad, so my parents, when I was born, were both professors at a historically black college in South Carolina, where my maternal side is from and where I was born. And my father and my parents were tenured at that point. So my father had heard about an opportunity in Saudi Arabia to do speech science, which is um, his field, um, just kind of a niche field in speech pathology and audiology. And he saw in the Chronicle of Education, which is you know their journal that everyone looks at jobs and everything in that there was this opportunity in Saudi Arabia. And he thought, oh, this might be a nice sabbatical. You know, I'll do that. And then maybe two years tops if I decide I like it. And he went for his sabbatical for a year. My mom and I stayed in South Carolina. She was still teaching. And then when he was there, the university he was teaching at in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh said, oh, you know, we actually want to build this department. We want to build out the program and not just have the speech science, but speech pathology, and we want to develop a project. And he said, oh, my wife's really the project developer. We should bring her. And, you know, at that time in Saudi Arabia too, that was a complicated conversation, my wife being <laughs> the one who should be leading this, right? And Crazy, yeah, in the 80s, right? They pulled it off in the 80s. This is 1986. And they pulled it off. And next thing we know, they went over and said, oh, we'll probably spend the next two years in Saudi Arabia. That turned in for me about 11 years. It turned in for my parents much more than that. And my mom actually went back for a while years later and worked there off and on and before she passed away. And so I have a long history with Saudi Arabia and um, consider it one of the places that you know are part of my roots. And I loved it. Um, it was a really, really important formative experience for me. And Although I think I embrace expat identity above all else, because that was really what I experienced. Yeah. There's something about the land, the people, the food, the culture, uh, the language that will always be with me and will always you know, be a really important part of my heart and important thing that I would want anyone in my life who is close to me to know about me. Um, it's really shaped my worldview. And just getting to go to school with kids from over 50 countries really shapes the way that one sees the world. So I'm grateful for that, just being able to think as a global thinker and 
to have it normalized that your classmates would speak many different languages, would eat different food, would travel to different places, would have different stories. Um, that intersectionality of it all on a global sense was my life. <laughs> so, um, and just seeing the common values and bonds that bring humans together. And I think that just having that at such a young age really prepared me for what I couldn't even imagine in terms of just really seeing um, where we are politically in the world and for, you know, just to really teach me how to always kind of want to see for myself what something's about rather than accepting stereotypes or what I've been told about it. Because even Saudi Arabia, I was, I was old enough to understand, even though I was super young, that there were negative stereotypes about it even then. And when I got there, I was so surprised at how much I loved it because I'd been told just such horrible things to expect yeah. by the media. Oh, I can only imagine. Well, you know, I went to school in Bangladesh, and I went to the American school there. So I was oh, I one of the it. local families. Yeah, but I, I went to school with all the expat kids and all the diplomatic kids. And, and I look at my children now who are going to school in America and, you know, it's almost like a dream. I can't even explain or try to even describe, you know, what kind of, my school experience was so cool in so many ways. You know, I had friends from all over the world and some of my closest friends to this day still are friends that I met in Bangladesh when their dads were posted there at the American embassy or working for the world bank or, you know, something. And we met in Taka in like the, in the late nineties or the early, early eighties. Like it's just crazy. So. But yeah, it was so multicultural and the Americans were like trilingual and they had like lived everywhere. It was, it was so cool. <laughs> I love it. I've seen pictures of your school because my band director in Saudi Arabia went on, uh, I think when she was teaching, she was either teaching in Lagos, Nigeria, or in Beirut, Lebanon, because they went on to teach at several different schools before they came back to the States. But they then went to your school for a big band competition and event. And so I, and I remember being really jealous that I couldn't go and seeing these amazing pictures of how green and beautiful Bangladesh is. Yes, it is very green. So I, I remember I have images of this very school you went to. So that's a very small world. It's so green. That is um, Oh my goodness. We're the same person. <laughs> so I wanted to get your thoughts on this. You know, when Biden was, this seems like a million years ago, but it was just actually a few months ago. Uh, when Biden was still deciding who his VP pick was going to be, and, you know, we just knew at one point that he wanted, you know, a black woman. We weren't sure. And, you know, all these names were being thrown out. And some people thought that Stacey Abrams was being a bit too aggressive and, and assertive about basically wanting to be chosen. And she was asked about that on CNN. And she answered, quote, I've been asked this question since last year. I was brought into the national conversation and I've been very honest about my willingness to serve. As a young black woman growing up in Mississippi, I learned that if you don't raise your hand, people won't see you and they won't give you attention. Do you think she's being too assertive? And, and her response was, hey, you have to raise your hand. You have to, you know, say I'm interested if you're interested in something. But people really criticized her for her over-enthusiasm. What do you think about her response? Do you agree with it? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I feel like my curiosity about it is I think that, that there are these realities that make it such that it is hard to blame folks who have had so many systemic challenges and so many barriers that it would make people feel like they can't raise their hand, they can't stand up, or they can't be counted. And yet, we 
must do whatever is within our power in order to be free, right? And so I think that I like to say I can I can understand why there was this concern or this response or this feeling that, oh, you're not addressing the problem at hand as to why someone may feel that way and fully subscribe to the belief that my personal belief that all of us have the ability and the opportunity to step into our power where we have it, that there are a series of choices we can make in any situation, even if those situations are dire. I think that is a conversation that makes a lot of sense around the election as well. And I always ask myself, how can I step into my power? So if one can step into their power and make a choice that is a choice to be heard, to ensure that they are seen and that they are taken seriously, that is an empowered choice. And I fully support that. And I think that what's beautiful about that too, is if you do that, you won't regret the alternative of not knowing what would have happened or what could have happened if you failed to speak, if you were to remain silent. Yeah. And you know, I think it's so, I think it's so racist and so sexist. And I feel like women of color have to deal with this all the time. Like, you know, sometimes I get criticized and people will be like, well, oh, you're such an over promoter or, or I'm like, you know, we're in the age of promotion and the age of self-promotion. And, you know, a man would have been, a white man would have been applauded for his assertiveness. And it's like, she had the skill. She's overqualified. <laughs> she's claiming her space. She's claiming her seat at the table as, you know, Shirley Chisholm, you know, talked about bringing your own folding chair to the table, right? If there's no seat for you for the table. I think there's, when we look at the people who've been able to make a difference in a lot of ways, it's taken a lot of courageous moments for people to do that. And also for people to understand that there will be critique when you do choose to to take bold steps and to say, yes, I am worthy. I am enough. I have a voice that deserves to be heard. I've similarly, you know, it's been interesting. I've had some folks in my life say similar things around, oh, you're over-promoting or you're entitled. And I'd say, let's think about what entitlement means because if you feel that entitlement is me wanting to claim my right to be seen, heard, respected, and given the space that any white man of my same merit um, experience or existence (laughs) would achieve, then, then you know what? You can define me as entitled. But what does that really mean that your understanding of entitlement is about a discomfort, from my perspective, a discomfort with people of color and women owning our power, taking up space and being unafraid to say, yes, I am here. I deserve to be here. I deserve to shout out what I have done. I deserve to be respected for what I've done. I I, I don't think that that's something that men, I know, wait, I won't even say don't think I'm going to address that. I know that men are not held under the same scrutiny for claiming their rightful place for taking a stand and for understanding their value in the world and amplifying it. And so I think that I'm also really sensitive to those kinds of critiques when they are wielded, especially against women of color, because it's often about a societal discomfort and conditioning with us claiming our power and daring to be ourselves without respect to fear about other people sidelining us or somehow disapproving of it. You know, I've, I've heard that a lot of people just expecting a, a 
a humility and a subjugation from us that is not okay. Yeah. It's not okay. You are so right. Like a subjugation and a submissiveness. And you're so right. A discomfort. Uh, yeah, I just found it so offensive. And I thought she was so graceful uh, in her response. I think it was Jake Tapper this, who asked her this question. And I was like, if she was a white man with without not even a high school diploma, nobody would have been asking her anything. I'm like, that is such an offensive question. And, and you know, she was, uh, she was asked that more than once. So yes, amen. I totally, I hear you. So you were the youngest director in the publishing house Feminist Press. Uh, in its history, and the first African-American woman to lead it, you were recently named, and this is so huge, I might start crying for you. Thank you. You were recently named the executive editor in the Random House imprint of Penguin Random House, and vice president as well, right? Yeah. Vice president and executive editor. Yes. Uh, in the Random House, in Random House. Um, that is so amazing, first of all. Amazing. Congra- huge congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's so funny because... The publishing world has such a white image, right? Do you do you agree with people when they when they say that? And do you think enough is being done? Because this is huge. This is, I mean, you're you're making history. Thank you so much. I mean, it is really it's completely true. That image is true, um, and things are getting better, and especially in the last year, and especially with everything that happened after the uprisings in June, but. Publishing very much needs to diversify. And there's been over the years now a we need diverse books movement and own voices movement and efforts to diversify, but there's been many voices that are still not represented at the highest levels of publishing and also throughout the different uh, divisions of publishing houses as well. And from an editorial standpoint, the editors really can shape what the cultural conversation is for not just this moment, but you know, for generations, especially at big houses. And so that's why it's so important that we are vigilant about conversations around um, systemic narrative power for people of color. Because when you have a landscape where, for example, only 1% of editors worldwide in publishing are Black, you can see why it took until this June and the events there for to have so many Black bestsellers on the New York Times list and that, you know, being really stunning when you think of the population of this country and and the amount of Black storytellers who have broken through to that status and wondering, okay, well, who who would, who were we missing, right? Whose voices were we missing? And when you think about um, Asian Pacific Islander voices and Latinx voices, trans voices, et cetera, you see similar disparities around that representation that we so need. So it's, something that I don't take lightly at all when I think about what it means to have a seat in publishing at the executive level and about what that means for whose voices I can also be a part of championing, amplifying, and supporting throughout all levels of the process. I was someone who never thought that I'd be able to be on this side of the desk in publishing because it felt cost prohibitive. I didn't feel like I could afford to do the internships and the institutes and all of those things and that I would kind of engage with books as an author and which I love doing, but also, you know, not being able to be on this part of it because I sort of had seen the retention issues and, and just these systemic barriers that exist. And so for me, I'm excited to be a part of publishing at this time where there are some seismic shifts happening and other people of color who are also entering publishing from 
with experience in other industries too, that will also help diversify the conversation with a diversity of uh, perspective and viewpoint. We have Madalika Sika, who is also coming to Crown. That's a part of the PRH division that I'm also a part of um, in, a, in a different imprint. Lisa Lucas as publisher and SVP of Knopf. So it just, it feels really stunning to me to really think about, you know, what will publishing look like 10 years from now? I'm hoping that the seeds that are being planted now will continue to bloom into more and more change and um, that we'll continue to see growth in this way and that we'll continue to see more equity on all levels from how much people receive in terms of their support from their publishers to uh, marketing publicity to the people who are designing books, the people who are producing books. That was a big part of what I've been doing at Feminist Press, making sure that we hire diverse designers to illustrate our books. Yes. And all of that's a part of it. Yes, you are so right. And you know, it, it was just so cool when the announcement about you came out because I feel like there's very few things that I can actually turn because we're just like in the fight always, you know, mm. we're always like in the fight. So it was so cool when I saw your news and I was able to show my nine-year-old daughter like, look, thank you. you know, this is huge. And you are so lucky. And she was like, yeah, yeah, mom. I'm like, no, you don't understand. This never happens. Like even in 2020. So, I mean, just, just amazing. You can't be what you can't see. So I totally agree with you. The importance of our stories and also the people who are designing these books because uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, kind of the disaster that was American dirt, you know, that happened. Oh my gosh. And then I had Jean Guerrero uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how at that book launch party, they had um, the centerpieces on the table were like barbed wires and like, you know, these candles. And I'm like, wow. When you have an all white team doing something like it will impact, how can you have the centerpieces be these barbed wires, you know, like mimicking the fencing? These are people's lives. It's so, and I think that's the thing too, that I think that it is really important to be having these conversations and really important to talk about what it means that the, that people who would, you know, consider themselves progressive would not notice what we would notice, right? In many different spaces would not um, instantly understand what we would instantly understand wouldn't be the right approach, would be appropriative or exploiting stereotypes. And I think that's one of the most important reasons why we need more people who represent the fullness of who we are um, as humanity at the table, shaping the story of who we are. And I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've heard sometimes when people get critiqued about books that have come under controversy, they'll say, oh, well, I got a sensitivity read and they didn't catch it, right? But it's, it's not enough to hire someone to give you their perspective because also people of color are not monolithic, right? And so I, I you know, I support that work of getting different people to put their views in and to get feedback. And that's something, you know, that even in my own books, I like to have folks who maybe representative of other communities that I'm talking about or who are impacted by the theories I'm writing about um, reflect on if there's been anything left out or anything I could go deeper in. Um, and I have sensitivity read for others as a friend or as um, a sensitivity reader for hire. But I also think that it's important for people to know you have to go beyond that, that there needs to be equity at all levels. They need to have people of color represented um, in all of the branches and departments of the work that we do and at all 
stages in the publishing and production process. And, you know, that even goes into the discussion around people who are in distribution of books, the warehouses, all of those pieces are really important, which is, um, you know, one of the reasons why at an independent bookseller like Feminist Press, because it was a nonprofit during my time there, it was really important to me to um, have all of our printers be North American printers, because then I knew that based on the laws, we could ensure that the labor practices were in alignment with our values and mission. And so, you know, even though on a, on a smaller scale, that was something that I thought, okay, this is something that, you know, we're, we're doing. And that is also, you know, can help model how other people think about how we think about diversity and representation and also, you know, labor standards and ethics at all levels of how we do the work. Oh, bravo. Exactly. So, you know, the two Gloria's a new movie that's out about Gloria's. I was watching that the other day and I was thinking about the feminist movement, which I think about all the time, (laughs) but I was thinking about how defined it kind of used to be and how we were able to kind of go back and point at this and that. And how would you describe the American feminist movement today? I mean, where are we? Are we primarily online? What do you, what would you say? It's so interesting. I, you know, what I love about what happened in the aftermath of 2016 is that although there's been some really robust online feminist campaigns that have been such an important part of amplifying intersectional feminism and getting more people access and also helping people who felt maybe alone or isolated in their communities, right? And who were seeking connection to have connection with others using these tools and platforms that the Women's March, the Marches Against the Muslim Men, um, Black Lives Matter, and you know that even starting back in 2013, having intersectional feminists being a part of the organizing and execution of these global marches that were both, that needed the fuel of both online and in-person civil disobedience is just so powerful. And I think when we look back at, you know, what this sort of, if I were to give it a wave, and I know it's very controversial to do that, but this sort of fourth wave um, (laughs) of feminism, you know, to, and, and what it means, I think that it's so beautiful because there's so many connections between what I felt was really generative and powerful about the second wave and more progress in terms of what still needs to be healed as remnants of some of the second wave's challenges and failures as it relates to just different issues we've had around divides in our movements around race, class, gender, and uh, conversations around LGBTQ issues. And so I think that what excites me about this is that, you know, with every phase, we continue to grow. And when I look at the Equal Rights Amendment and the Constitutional Equality Amendment work that's happening and having so many women of color in in the leadership of a movement that was mischaracterized as only being white for so long. Yes. I think about how we have made some gains and more gains in the public conversation. And although we need many more gains (laughs) um, as seen from the Supreme Court decision um, that was recently made to confirm Amy Coney Barrett. Um, We still, I think, have another generation of feminists who are coming up of all genders and of all races who really understand that this is all related to systems. This is all related to power imbalances that need to be made right. And that is 
a win. And I think that that's why we're seeing so much backlash. That's why we're seeing so much pushback and desperation from opponents to freedom, justice, and equality, because they know that we're winning and they know that we eventually will. And so they're just trying to kind of do everything they can right now to pull it all back for their time. And um, that gives me a lot of faith, no matter what the outcome is of any specific election right now, that in the terms of the public conversation of the next generation, I do believe that the kids are all right and they, they fully understand. And I think so much of what's happened with these movements and, you know, even um, the gun, the gun control movement and the justice movement around that, having people like Emma Gonzalez at the forefront of it, Greta Thunberg, the list goes on. Yeah, it's so true. I'm actually working on the story for, you know, there's been really horrific rise on really toxic violence against women and girls in Bangladesh. And I'm working on, on some, on the story with some young activists on the ground. And, and I kind of started on this speech about like rape culture and how we have to do this. And and they are so, they're like light years ahead of where I was at that age. You know, they are so bold and so brave. And they were like, Oh, we know all about this used to be X, Y, and Z. We can no longer let men friend the conversation. And I was just like, I have so much faith in the next generation. I really, I really do. They're, they're so much braver and bolder than even I was at their age. So yes, you're, you're absolutely right about that. I wanted to ask you about your mom a little bit. Sure. Tell me what it was like, because I was reading, I was reading about how you grew up reading feminist press books that she had in her collection and in, uh, in her shelves. So what was your mom like growing up? She sounds like she was a really big influence in your life. Oh my gosh. And thank you for this opportunity to speak about my mom. She was such a beautiful light in my life. And, you know, she was gone too soon um, and just such a beautiful person. Um, we lost her on Christmas Day of 2018. And I, I still have such heartbreak around that, right? But then also kind of thinking, oh, if you lived like such a great life, you would pick a really great day <laughs> um, to kind of to take your <laughs> debut nod. Um, but yeah, my mother was just a really strong and formidable person who was also extremely generous, extremely visionary, and had a really strong sense of dignity and a sense of discernment. You know, I think of her discernment would be, you know, her superpower, that she just had really good judgment, and but was full of empathy. And so she was someone who um, really didn't suffer any fools. <laughs> um, and sometimes that could be mistaken by some as being really strong in a negative way, but it was really a, a positive strength that my mom was just always about being an encourager in chief for her students, for her loved ones, and you know, for her community and her activism. And my mother was very involved in the civil rights movement in South Carolina. Her father had been a leader in her local NAACP group, and she had seen him registering voters dealing with all of the voter suppression issues there. And when she was in high school, she became super active in civil disobedience, lunch counter sit-ins, getting arrested several times in college and in uh, and, and high school, um, and also surviving the Orangeburg massacre um, as well when she was on her college campus, um, which was one of the first and largest mass shootings at a school at, a, at the historically black college that she went to. And so those experiences really formed my mother's perspective around activism and also her understanding of wanting to do work that would help everyone achieve dignity and justice in their lives. And as a speech pathologist, that was a really big part of her work that she 
went on to become very, very well known in her field and, and write some really important books, but did global work, making sure that everyone who wants to have the right to communicate can, and really sort of raising up communications disorders as a social justice issue, as well as um, talking about disability advocacy, et cetera. And so she was so important and integral to my formation of an activist voice and um, perspective because she would just expose me to so much. She exposed me to American Sign Language really young, just being in her office, integrating me with other children who could only sign. So I had to figure out, oh, I need to learn how to sign back and communicate with them, right? Um, Bringing me to anything that she would go to, I would go to. She took me to Marion Wright Edelman's Stanford Children's Conference uh, when I was maybe 12, 13 years old, and I got to go there and see activism around children's rights, which was such a big passion of hers. And all of that really helped to shape who I am, that just her and my dad exposing me to political activism, taking me to marches, bringing me on a phone bank or a mailing uh, event and getting pizzas and doing that. And, um, you know, also just completely showering me with books. I mean, right now, as we speak, I'm looking at my shelf full of books that she bought me that have beautiful notes in her perfect cursive and them about pushing myself to dream big, to focus on my writing, to focus on my voice and to focus on helping and supporting others. She just was someone who, when I think about the fact that her life was cut short by cancer, I felt like it was interesting for me to just look at spiritually because she just never wasted a minute. She just seemed to have a sense of knowing that it was important to make your purpose matter in every moment. And you would find her, you know, if she wasn't thinking about a project or working on building something, she was often writing and often writing down her ideas or often writing down her dreams or her visions. And one cute little story I'll share is even my husband was talking about some of the work he wanted to do around his music. He's a musician and how he wanted to touch people with that and to help, you know, make his music be a supporting healing force in the world. And she handed him a folder full of ideas that she had created for months and printouts and labels with her perfect cursive. And I said, oh, you're officially in the family. The fact that she has a file on you, which we all have (laughs) with all of the solutions and the well thought out contacts that she has and the map around what she thinks that you might do is showing me that you're going to be a big, long part of this family. (laughs) And, And so she just really uh, rooted for me. And even with the feminist press job, you know, when I came on as the first woman of color in this role in almost 50 years, I thanked her because if I hadn't had a mother who was the first African-American PhD in her grad school program and a father who was the first African-American PhD in his, I wouldn't have been able to talk to people about what it's like to be a first. And, you know, they were very vocal about just saying, well, when you are a first, it's important for you to think about what conditions you create so that you never have anyone else need to be the first again (laughs) Um, and setting up those conditions that you want to be the first of many. And so your job is to create conditions so that you're creating a bridge for many more to come. And so that's a gift that she gave me and I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And I, you know, think of her every day. I, I keep thinking about her in terms of this election too, because in her last weeks, she said when they would ever, you know, they'd ask you after procedures, what's your name? Where are you from? Where were you born? Who's the president? And she always said, unfortunately, Donald Trump. 
And that would always make me feel that no matter how bad things were, that she still had her sense of humor, but that, you know, she had said to me right before she passed, every generation does its part to make things a little bit better. I tried my best to do what I could to make it a little bit better and promise me that you'll do. And I know that you will, I know you will, but promise me that you'll do what you can to make it a little bit better and the next and the next and the next. And so I try, I try to do a quarter of what she did in that spirit to keep her legacy moving. Oh my goodness. Well, now I'm crying. I'm very, very close to my mom. And she was like that too. I mean, she, I love it. You know, she's, she was, she's like a former member of parliament in Bangladesh. She launched amazing. Yeah. She launched like the country's first like feminist magazine. And she would drag me with her everywhere when I was a kid. And I really thought she was trying to ruin my life. And every (laughs) day I tell her, I'm like, Oh my God, thank God. She dragged me to her feminist symposiums from like age four. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I wish our moms had met because they would have oh, been yes. best friends. Cause I, I mean, I even think about it. I remember I asked my mom, you know, who were your like five heroes? And you know, my mom would just, you know, one of her biggest heroes was Benazir Bhutto. Really? And so we, oh, we have tons of books about her in our house and everything. And and my mom, um, you know, just had such an affinity to South Asia and um, did a Fulbright in um, Southern India. Oh, my goodness. Um, while she was there, but traveled to Pakistan and Bangladesh. And um, I have a lot of beautiful lingas and beautiful Sharwas Kameen that she left me. But she um, really, you know, taught me a lot about looking at feminism more globally, too, because she'd often say, look, you know, when we're talking about feminism in this country, Often we can talk about it in terms of black and white, but we really need to talk about, you know, colonialism and and also what our sisters are experiencing in the global South. So I I just feel like my mom and your mom would have much to talk about. Um, And I wish they would have had their chance to do so because my mom often would introduce me to a lot of amazing, strong, powerful women that she'd met in her work in India. And um, when she passed, I got a lot of calls. lots of folks just saying, you know, wanting me to know and wanting me to know what she did. So I'm excited about what your mom's done. I'm going to have to Google her and and learn more about her amazing work. Yes. I'm going to introduce you to her. I I would love that. Make a point. You know, I took her out for coffee with uh, Soraya Shamali when she was in DC. So maybe I'll bring her to the next Women uh, Media Center Awards. If we ever get to do anything in person again, hopefully soon. Oh my God, that would be like my dream. And my mom would just love you. That would be it. I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait to meet her. And, you know, I have whenever, like you said, we're talking about the event whenever I get a chance to go to Bangladesh too, I'll have to call you because it's definitely on my bucket list of places. I mean, I, my mom and I wanted to go on a whole like tour of that entire region together because I've never gone, but you know, you need to go for a while. That's why I haven't gone yet. Um, She did four months. You do, but you don't also, I feel like people used to go for so long. I mean, now you could do like a month is good. Two months is good. You know, you could do Bangladesh, Nepal, Assam. You could do it also nicely Burma and then go down to East Asia Four months. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, she, it, was a, it was a Fulbright. Cause I remember, cause my dad talks about it all the time. Cause you know, it's like that issue of like childcare, et cetera. And they had a pretty feminist partnership, you know, but he's like, Oh yeah. While your mom was gone to India. I remember I lived with my grandma that summer because my dad had a job working 
doing some work as a part of a um, of a sabbatical of his own. And I remember just thinking, oh yes, that's so what happens, right? <laughs> that four months when she's gone, my dad's like, oh, give her to grandma. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Um, even though he's totally a feminist and amazing, but yes, I, I think about that now. I'm like, oh yeah, that whole time mom was in India. <laughs> I was at grandma's. That is so funny because my husband is so great and he is such a feminist, but if I'm ever out of town, he takes the girls to his mom's house like so fast. <laughs> he's like, oh honey, I support you. And then the kids are just gone. I'm like, where are the kids? Um, but anyhow, you will like, Hey, talk about trusted childcare. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, it's so funny because I think about it now and I think I'm really glad that I had that time with grandma. Right. But it is funny because now that I'm thinking about starting my own family and what that might look like, if that's something that we do. And I, I need to think about it quick because I just turned 40. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think in, in terms of that, I've thought about that a lot to say, oh yeah, I, I have a feeling that my mother-in-law will probably be engaged quite frequently <laughs> as well, right? Um, and like, you know, what is that? And like, how do I feel about that in my feminism, right? But yeah, I think she would welcome it also, but it is interesting that I, there are things that I'm just thinking about what the women in my life did for me that I took for granted, yes. right? And now I, I see it with new eyes. Oh, totally. And if you do end up having kids, you will see it in completely new eyes all over again. I thought I had everything figured out, but what women do for each other, for themselves, for the world. I mean, I think I'm just constantly discovering uh, the layers. Oh my God. I hope, you know, and you know what, all this being 40 and having kids, Madonna had kids at like 49. We can do anything. Oh my gosh. I let's see. Thank you for telling me that. I love that. Cause I keep, I mean, I know every time my doctor's like, Oh, you're extending oh, your pregnancy. <laughs> They're going to make you feel like crap about it all the way through your delivery. High risk, high risk, but you're high risk. They said geriatric. Somebody oh my said God. geriatric no. to me. And no. I was just like, I, I cannot abide, but I guess that's the scientific term. No, because there's way too many white men in science. They need to take that geriatric. That is so offensive and really hurt. Right. Yes. What the heck? I was, I hated it because you know what I was, I mean, I'm 40 now too, but yeah, high, I think they consider you high risk if you're over, like if you're in your thirties, it's something super young and very dumb. Wow. I'm very sexist, but yeah, so you can do whatever you want. I'm sure you know, whenever you want. <laughs> okay, the last question, you've been so generous with your time and I think I should just make you a co-host and we should just talk every day on this show. It'll be so much fun. Oh my gosh, I am having so much fun with you and thank you. My And my chai's right here, tasting even better. <laughs> Did you have you drank it yet? Oh, it's even better. Yes, it's tasting even better, which is great. Oh. It's a great sign of the company I'm keeping. Oh, fabulous. Okay, so last question. What is your message to young women and girls who look at your life and career and think, wow, I want to be Jamia Wilson when I grow up? What do you say to them? Oh my gosh. Um, one, I'm really humbled by that. <laughs> but I would say, you know, I want you to aim to be your complete, intact, most holy and sacred self. And to know that by doing that, by trusting her, by giving her what she needs, supporting her, surrounding her with healthy, supportive and nurturing people, connecting her to the opportunities and people who will help her to grow in the ways that she wants to grow. And 
reading and giving her all the books that she needs to read about all the things she's interested in and giving her opportunities to try things that she doesn't have to be perfect at, but just to try all the things that pique her interest, that if you do those things, (laughs) that will get you to be on the track for understanding how you can be your very best self. Because what I think uh, about my own trajectory is that once I began to get really clear about what it is I want to do in the world, what it is that I believe that my strengths are and how they align with the world's need and how they, that kind of inaction and that kind of action upon a purpose that I feel and a calling. And I got really clear about that, taking ownership of it, kind of like your first question and unapologetic about it. That is when the doors that needed to open up for me started to open up. When I start stopped sort of talking myself out of taking big leaps, when I talked myself out of speaking up, even if something made me feel like maybe I was stepping out of bounds or maybe exceeding other people's beliefs about my potential. And then I'd say just being open to the idea that you can continuously grow and reinvent and start over with every day, that this idea that we have to only be living life playing one note is outdated and antiquated. And a lot of people with really good intentions will tell you to focus on just one thing, but I am a multi-hyphenate human being who somehow decided and figured out how to make a living doing the things that I love. (laughs) And I think to continue to kind of say, yes, you can have intention, discernment, strategy, and also understand, you know, when you need to kind of stay focused, but also to have um, a strong sense of discernment and intention around knowing when it's okay to kind of try different things and to open oneself into new terrain, into new opportunity, and to let that flow. That is what I would call it. Any young person who would ask for my advice, because I think I've just been someone who has been open to leaning into the yes for my life, but that has meant also drawing some clear boundaries and crossing out things that no longer feel healthy or nourishing to me and, and creating and strengthening a sense of discernment around that. Oh, I love that. I am so glad that we did this interview today on election day, when I feel like the world is just spinning out of control. This conversation has really centered me. Mm, Thank you. I needed this too. I needed it too. And thank you so much for having me and for all you do. Every time I see you on TV, I'm just like sitting there clapping for you. So you should just imagine that. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm rooting for you. Thank you so much, Jamia. What I love the most after I speak with women like Jamia is how hopeful I feel about the impact women of color will have when we're put in positions of power that too few of us have been able to access, especially in the world of publishing. On a personal note, this is a world I have spent the past year really getting to know, and I wanted to share with you that I just accepted a book deal myself from Simon & Schuster's Tiller Press imprint. I will be writing about sexism in healthcare, especially focusing on the experiences of women of color. The book is tentatively titled Hysterical and is slated to be out in 2021, inshallah. I guess women of color are already changing the publishing world. Wish us luck! If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast. We also just launched our YouTube channel, so you have to check that out. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.